Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, little bit of uh, history at the start of the broadcast. There's there appears now to be a um, a rule that with every one of the mishapulous wars the United States has gotten into over the last half century or so, there's sort of a way to find out what's really going on. It's not through normal media channels, and nor is it uh, through um, shaman or, or shay women, for that matter. Um, in the case of the Vietnam War, cast your mind back before you were born. There was a, a phenomenon in the Vietnam era called teach-ins. It was a, a linguistic twist on the phenomenon called love-ins. Just everything was in in, the, in that era. So teach-ins were where people who uh, had professional expertise in the history of Indochina and that area of the world would um, address groups of young, mainly men, uh, draftees, potential draftees, let's put it that way, and uh, hip them to what the the real history was, which was, interestingly, uh, about uh, 100% opposite of what the uh, government was telling the potential draftees. Uh, For example, um, the government line was that Vietnam was a cat's paw of the Chinese, uh, a way that the Chinese were expanding their influence into Indochina with the violence of the North Vietnamese. Anyway, you go to Vietnam, uh, as I had the opportunity to do later, and learn that they didn't hate us so much because we came and went pretty quickly. They kind of hated the French, but the Vietnamese really hated the Chinese is all, you know, just that. Anyway, the teachings shared that information with, but as I say, potential draftees, giving them the opportunity to at least think about whether they wanted to uh, accept induction into the armed forces of the United States. In the case of the Iraq War, uh, long-time listeners to this program know that there were three officials of um, in the non-proliferation parts of intelligence agencies in the United States, Australia, and Great Britain that were saying in advance of the Iraq War, in public, in defiance of the government line, and... Um, at the risk of at least their jobs, were saying that the what was being proffered as the intelligence was not really what the intelligence was saying. It was uh, cherry-picked horse droppings delivered straight to Dick Cheney's office and not uh, what the intelligence agencies really knew. Uh, and that's a long way of introducing uh, this gentleman. You've heard from him. He has been pretty much the source of information contrary to the government line on the war in Afghanistan. He's the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction, the SIGAR. And as I say, I've been sharing his reports from you on this program, John Sopko. 
Um, I've been sharing his reports because I, you know, I did the really hard work. I got on his mailing list. And so I was getting his reports and noticing that I wasn't hearing about them on any program I was listening to. Of course, I don't listen to this program. So I decided to uh, share some of those reports, some of those more damning reports with you. And um, so with the war having come to um, an ignominious, I think would be the word conclusion, uh, he delivered sort of a, um, a, a, a farewell address. Uh, he didn't call it that, but I don't think we're, we're going to be hearing a lot from him uh, in the future about a war that's over. So uh, I, I wanted to share at the beginning of this program the uh, essence of why his office existed and why he persisted. This is him uh, in the last few days talking to a group of people who write and edit news about the military. Here's John Sopko. I believe in public discourse. I believe that's how we solve problems. The American taxpayer has a right to know. And, and, and that's one of the things I am still outraged about. Most of this material, the Taliban knew it, the Afghan government knew it, our U.S. government knew it. The only people who didn't know what was going on in Afghanistan were the people paying for it, both in lives and in money, and that's the American taxpayer. That's what I find offensive with the process. So count me as old school, antediluvian or whatever, but that's something we got to, I think, got to address as a country. Or as a nation. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. Hey, we just had an election in New Orleans. It's very exciting. The mayor had no real opposition. Congratulations. So it's an interesting thing to pull off. And, and now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Yes, another inspector general checks in. Also, in this case, having to do with uh, military affairs, there are a handful of things that are supposed to happen when a service member reports a sexual assault. First, an investigator with specific training in such cases should be assigned. Later, a trained special victims prosecutor comes to the case. According to the Military Times, that hasn't been happening. A Defense Department inspector general report released this week found that commands have been mishandling these cases on a grand scale, well, why, why not a grand scale for something so extremely I- I- improper? The Air Force, for example, failed to appoint special victims prosecutors in 94% of its cases. The Navy failed to comply with that regulation 59% of the time, 50 and 30% for the Army and Marine Corps, respectively. We found, this is a quote, that the DOD, the Department of Defense, cannot ensure that the victims of sexual assault are receiving support services supposedly available to them. That's the acting inspector general from the Defense Department. We also found that the DOD cannot ensure that all commanders and investigators are making decisions based on the best possible information because of, among other things, inexperienced or untrained prosecutors, unquote. Untrained prosecutors welcome. Right this way. The report also found issues with investigators properly documenting communications with the investigating and prosecuting teams. Army Criminal Investigation Command blamed its case management system. <laughs> Blame the system, which doesn't prompt investigators to document that required information. The Naval Criminal Investigative Service and the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations said that if communication wasn't documented, it was an oversight on the investigator's part. That's not part of the system. That's part of the oversight system. Many of the issues in the report come down to a dearth of qualified experts throughout the military investigative commands. Come on, you qualified investigators, sign on up. Recommendations include ordering reviews in each military department to figure out what it will require, require to properly train enough investigators. Like um, more training. The IG also recommended standardizing documentation procedures for communications. That'll do her. That right there will do her. It all seems so together, doesn't it? Um, on a related subject regarding America's longest war, the United States military has not located a suspected Islamic State safe house in Kabul. That, as the House officials initially said, led to an American drone strike 
near the end of August, that mistakenly, honest mistake, killed 10 civilians, including seven children. This according to two senior military officials quoted in the New York Times. Yeah, sometimes the New York Times. Two days before the drone strike, military officials said they had determined through electronic intercepts Aerial surveillance and informants that IS partners or sorry, IS planners were using a compound about three miles northwest of the Kabul airport to facilitate future attacks involving rockets, suicide, explosive vests, and car bombs. But an inquiry into the drone strike by the Air Force's Inspector General, Lieutenant General Sami D. Said, hmm, said that was wrong. We have not found any particular safe house, he said in an interview. After making his findings public, he would not discuss the underlying information that led military analysts to focus on the house and even dispatch six Reaper drones to monitor it, other than to say it was not faulty intelligence. It was just not specific. So somehow, somewhere, let's kill him. A second U.S. military official confirmed that the available intelligence on the location was not precise enough. But, you know, should we kill somebody? Nearly everything senior defense officials asserted in the hours, days, and weeks after the strike has turned out to be false. The explosives the military claimed were loaded in the trunk of a white Toyota sedan struck by the drone's missile were probably water bottles. A secondary explosion in the courtyard in a densely populated Kabul neighborhood where the attack took place was probably a propane or gas tank, officials now say. Senior Defense Department leaders have conceded the driver of the car, a longtime worker for a U.S. aid group, had nothing to do with Islamic State, contrary to what military officials previously asserted. Zimari Ahmadi. Well, it's a suspicious-sounding name. Come on. His only connection to IS appeared to be a fleeting and innocuous interaction with people in what the military believed was an IS safe house, but now Pentagon officials say that judgment was also mistaken after an investigation by the New York Times that the safe house's location was actually the residence of Ahmadi's boss, who American military officials also say has no ties to IS. Even so, the inspector general found no violations of law and did not recommend any disciplinary action. Stuff happens. He said a series of assumptions made over the course of eight hours as U.S. officials tracked the white Toyota through Kabul caused what he called confirmation bias leading to the drone strike. His investigation made several recommendations for fixing the process through which strikes are ordered, including new measures to cut down the risk of confirmation bias. Well, don't have any. How about that? We're going to try that. And a review of the procedures used to determine whether civilians are present. (laughs) All right, then. I think we've taken care of that drone strike. And we're real sorry about those civilians. What do we tell the children? Oh, we killed them. That's what we tell them. News of Inspector General, ladies and gentlemen. It is, oh, so very much, a copyrighted feature. 
of this broadcast. And now, very quickly, let's switch to this. News of the warm, won't you? It's copyrighted, too, in a very special way. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen. The most pristine parts of the Amazon rainforest, devoid of direct human contact, are being impacted by human-induced climate change. That's according to new research by scientists at uh, the supposed university nearby called LSU. They closed down their hurricane center. What do they know? New analyses of data collected over the past four decades show that not only has the number of sensitive resident birds throughout the Amazon rainforest declined, but the body size and wing length have changed for the species that are the most intensely studied. These physical changes in the breeds track increasingly hot and dry conditions in the dry season. Even in the middle of this pristine Amazon rainforest, we're seeing the global effects of climate change caused by people, including us, said an associate ecologist at the Integral Ecology Research Center and lead author of the study published in Science Advances. Birds in the rainforest have become smaller and their wings have become longer over several generations, indicating a response to the shifting environmental conditions that may include new physiological or nutritional challenges. See, forget the diet thing. Just trust your own body to get smaller. Well, you have to become a bird first. This is the first study to discover these changes in non-migratory birds body size and shape. See, they're trapped there. They don't go anywhere else all year. This uh, eliminates other factors that may have influenced these physiological changes. The researchers studied data collected on more than 15,000 individual birds were captured, measured, weighed, marked with a leg band, and released over 40 years of field work in the Amazon. The data reveal all, nearly all the birds' bodies have reduced in mass become lighter since the 1980s. Most of the birds' species lost on average about 2% of their body weight every decade. I know you wish you could do that, right? For an average bird species that weighed about 30 grams, that's 1.05 ounces, in the 1980s, well, the 80s, remember that music? The population now averages about 0.97 ounces. These birds don't vary that much in size. They're fairly fine-tuned. So when everyone in the population is a couple of grams smaller, it's significant, said the co-author of the study. Data set covers a large range of the rainforest. Changes in birds' bodies and wings across communities are not tied to one specific site. The phenomenon, therefore, can be conclusively characterized, characterized as pervasive. This is undoubtedly happening all over and probably not just with birds, said chief researcher. If you look out your window and consider what you're seeing out there, the conditions are not what they were 40 years ago. It's very likely plants and animals are responding to those changes as well. We have this idea that the things we see are fixed in time, but if these birds aren't fixed in time, that may not be true, unquote. 
The researcher and the scientist investigated 77 species of rainforest birds that live ranging from the cool, dark forest floor to the warmer, sunlit midstory. Birds that reside in the highest section of the midstory that are most exposed to heat and drier conditions had the most dramatic change in body weight and wing size. These birds also tend to fly more than the birds that live on the forest floor. The hypothesis now is these birds have adapted to a hotter, drier climate. By reducing their wing loading, they're therefore becoming more energy efficient as they fly. If a bird has higher wing loading, it needs to flap its wings faster to stay aloft. That requires more energy, produces more metabolic heat. Reducing body weight and increasing wing length leads to more efficient resource use while keeping cooler in a warming climate. These birds are not so stupid, you know. We say bird brains. We can't do that. We can't just say, hey, let's, let's lose 2% of our body weight and not fret about it. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. It is and continues to be a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Inertia. Leading sponsors of the Beijing Winter Olympics should explain why they remain largely silent about alleged human rights abuses in China. The Games are opening in China in just under three months. That was a call from Human Rights Watch. It said in an online briefing at which the Associated Press was present, it had re reached out to all but one of the IOC's called top sponsors and leading broadcast rights holder NBC in lengthy letters almost six months ago. The only reply came from sponsor Allianz, the German bank, which it wrote only last month. We stand behind the Olympic movement and our long-standing support for the ideas will not waver, said Alliance. Games open February 4th. The letters asked sponsors to be aware of the rights climate in China and to scrutinize supply chains and other operations to assure they do not, quote, contribute to human rights violations. The statement said sponsors risk being associated with an Olympics tainted by censorship and repression. By the way, NBC accounts for about 40% of IOC income. This is uh, just three days after Global Trade Union Group issued a scathing report that questioned the propriety of China holding the games in the face of alleged genocide and crimes against humanity reportedly taking place in the Xinjiang, northwestern China. The report from the International Trade Union Confederation is titled, China, a gold medal for repression. China repeatedly denies that a genocide is taking place, terming it the lie of the century. Not sure Donald Trump agrees. It said camps in northwestern China are for education. We always go to camps for education, don't we? not arbitrary internment of imported one million Uyghur Muslims and other religious and ethnic minorities. The IOC says its only focus is sports. 
has no remit to act on the policies of a sovereign state. Unlike any other sports business, the IOC does hold an observer seat of the United Nations. Most of the IOC sponsors have signed on to the so-called United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, spelling out the obligations of states and businesses to respect, protect, and fulfill human rights and fundamental freedoms. The IOC says its only focus is on sports. The IOC did not include those guidelines just referred to in the host city contract for the Beijing Olympics. It is in the contract for the Paris Olympics and other future games. When the IOC awarded Beijing the 2008 Summer Olympics, it said they would improve human rights in China. The failure of Chinese authorities to uphold the rights-related commitment they made to win the Summer Games and their deepening repression since that time make clear that the government cannot be expected to respect human rights around the upcoming Winter Games, said Human Rights Watch. Yeah, but it's the Olympics, ladies and gentlemen. Right schmites. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day! Well, there are um, a couple of trials that are commanding attention in the United States or have been this week. Um, one, which I, I've seen snippets of in the news, has involved the three men accused of killing Ahmad Arbery, a, a young black man who was hiking or walking through their neighborhood. Oh, you don't want to be doing that. Um, and the other, which got sort of wall-to-wall coverage when the defendant testified this week, was uh, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who, you you probably know this story, but for our overseas listeners. Oh, by the way, yeah, I I neglected to mention when I discovered this a couple weeks ago. We're now heard, this this program is now heard via RTE in Ireland. Hello, Ireland. Thank you for uh, joining us. Um, absolutely sincere. I know it doesn't sound like it when I try to sound absolutely sincere. That's that's my curse. Anyway, the uh, trial I say of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who uh, last year at the age of the tender age of seventeen, got uh, a friend to buy a, a an AR-15 in a neighboring state, had his mom drive him to the neighboring state so he could go to a riot and try to help out and ended up shooting a couple of people who uh, didn't like and made clear their distaste for his presence at their riot, I guess is one way of putting it. Um, The judge became sort of famous in that trial for um, telling the prosecutor, don't be brazen with me which I think is the first time I've heard that phrase uttered in all my, in all my born years. But it, is, um, it, 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 it was transfixing. The, um, the trial is not over yet. The uh, closing statements will be made at the beginning of this week. 
but already it's having profound cultural effects. A teenage Avenger shoots his way to ratings gold. Got to be inside Extra Access tonight for the middle of November 2021. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike DeVere. And I'm Pat Mungo. Good as new. Again. True crime has become a podcast staple. But in today's TV, you still need a fish out of water. How about someone too young to buy a gun coming to the rescue every week? We've realized that uh, some superhero in super tights is is not going to help us. But uh, a, a geeky kid whose mom has to drive him to the scene of a crime... And that's what I call relatable with a capital R. And maybe a capital E, too. Dominic DeGrazia is creative director of Adrenaline Pictures. His latest project not only might just ring a bell, it erects the whole tower. Clay is just an ordinary kid. Plays video games, dreams he's actually living in them. And then all of a sudden he is. A friend buys him a gun that's like super lit. His mom has the free time to drive him to wherever there's trouble. He just wants to make things right. Every week he pulls off what we call another feat of clay. It's a great character to play. James Michael Gordon stars as Clay. See, he's he's not a superhero per se, so he's scared like you or I would be, whether you know he's facing gangland killers or, or foreign spies. So I get to show his, his vulnerability. I get to cry and break down and, you know, do a lot of real actor stuff. But then look out. This guy never fails to get busy. I uh, first pitched an idea like this seven or eight years ago. The reaction I got was, it seems unrealistic or impossible. Thank goodness I'm not hearing that anymore. Clay is based on a real person. That's usually a bragging point, but not this time. All the material that we really needed for the uh, character is on the public record, you know, from the trial. And uh, since some people don't think the real person should profit from shooting people, it's a plus that we're not paying him. There was a time, maybe five or six years ago, when this character would have... Uh, you know, had to, had to have worked with the police, but now people are all divided about that. They still hate the bad guys, though, maybe more than ever. So I think uh, Clay's one-man <laughs> or one-boy approach to dealing with the bad guys really, really works. The newest big league streaming service, Max Plus, has greenlit the first nine episodes of Clay and orange-lit nine more. And Kia has signed up for product placement as Clay's mom's car. That's a wrap for this edition. But Inside Extra Access tonight comes roaring back tomorrow with the results of our latest IEAT poll. We asked you whether there are too many award shows on TV. And the result will have you crying with gratitude. Till then, so long from El Segundo.
face before You were the man that I saw running from the store You owed him money, but you gave him something more With a gun, with a gun You will be what you are just the same Did you pay the other man with the peace in your hand And leave him lying in the rain You were the founders of the clinic in the hill Until he caught you with your fingers in the tail He slapped your hand so you settled up your bill With a gun, with a gun What you are just the same Did you pay the other man With the peace in your hand And leave him lying in the rain When you're born to play the fool And you've seen all the western movies War to the one who does you wrong You'll hide in the bushes Murder the man From New Orleans, this is Le Show, and now, news of Nice Corp. Nice people. Doing nice things. Well, you're familiar, perhaps, with the fact that um, some of the opinion hosts in prime time on the Fox News channel uh, raise a skeptical eyebrow at the notion of vaccine mandates regarding COVID-19. And uh, it is therefore just just a wee bit ironic that one of the people imposing such a mandate is Rupert Murdoch, head of Fox Corporation, which owns the Fox News Channel, as well as the Fox wannabe Newsmax, Newsmax sent an internal email a couple days ago stating that all employees must be fully vaccinated by January 4 next year or undergo weekly COVID tests, according to Mediate. The network cited the new vaccination rule from the Labor Department. Tom? The Labor Department? Yes. To be enforced by the Occupational Safety, uh, Health and Safety Administration. That sets the requirement for companies with at least 100 employees and establishes the January 4th deadline. That's uh, since been stayed by the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit right here in New Orleans. Yeah, we got a court here. Labor Department said it's confident it has the legal authority to uh, promulgate the rule and it will prevail. Meanwhile, for his 90th birthday party at uh, the Tavern on the Green in New York City last week, Oh, I forgot to send a gift. 
Rupert Murdoch required that the guests not only show proof of vaccination, but take a rapid nose swab test to enter the facility. That's according to Politico. Uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm a... I'm a, a skeptical, if not a cynical kind of cuss, but uh, I, I don't necessarily take that as hypocrisy on his part. That may just be because he likes to watch guests take nose swabs. No, as it turns out, it's not. It's in keeping with Fox Corporation's requirement that all employees either be vaccinated or submit to daily testing. That has resulted in a 90% vaccination rate at the company. I bet I know who's in the other 10%. They're on Fox primetime. News of Nice Corp, ladies and gentlemen. Nice people. Nice, nice, nice people doing nice things. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Activision. They're a uh, video game producer. They apologize for a design choice on a Call of Duty Vanguard Zombies map. It apparently scattered pages of the Quran across a floor and spattered them with blood. The content stoked a furious response on social media has already been removed from the game, Activision said. Pages can be seen torn out in a series of screenshots on Twitter, drawn out and strewn over an unknown location in the Zombies map. They show writing in Arabic script. Activision didn't describe the pages in its apology, but did acknowledge, quote, there is insensitive content to the Muslim community, mistakenly included last week, and has since been removed from the game. It should never have appeared as it did in the game. The company said, we deeply apologize. We're taking immediate steps internally to address the situation to prevent such occurrences in the future. Back in 2012, Activision removed a map from the Infinity Ward-developed Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, published three years earlier. Players had noticed paintings hung in the bathroom of one of the game's maps contained a quote from the Prophet Muhammad, Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Activision apologized then and returned the map to the game with the offending content removed. The thing going on at Activision. Former Chicago Bulls player Corey Benjamin apologized on his daughter's behalf after she was caught on camera punching a 15-year-old opponent, knocking her to the ground and leaving her with a concussion during a basketball tournament in Orange County, California over the weekend. Benjamin was not at his daughter's game but the former NBA player told NBC that when he saw the video, he was saddened. This is not how I raised my daughter, he said, of the violent punch which left the girl with a concussion. To the young lady who was punched by my daughter during a youth basketball game, I sincerely apologize to you and I'm praying for your complete healing, both physically and emotionally. To her family, I deeply apologize and regret that this happened to your daughter, as she did not deserve this to happen to her. Finally, I apologize to all those who have been impacted and hurt by the actions of my daughter, as well as those of her mother. 
Uh-oh. I'm here for your family and wish only the best for you. As a father, I'm shocked and disappointed at my daughter's behavior, as this is not a reflection of the values and standards that my family holds. Nor does it exemplify the values, character, and spirit of sportsmanship that the game of basketball requires. My daughter made a mistake, one that she will need to make right. I'm committed to getting my daughter any help she may need in support and taking accountability for her conduct. Unquote. Sounds like there's something going on in that uh, in that family. Um, referee told NBC the uh, girl's mother allegedly said to her daughter, "Quote: You better go hit her." Charlie Eager, the former running backs coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks. All right, let's let's slow down here for a minute. We're talking about Canada, okay? And we're talking about, I guess this would be Canadian, yeah, CFL, Canadian football. 11 yards, three downs. You with me so far? They have a team called the Red Blacks. They're not the Reds. They're not the Blacks. They're the Red Blacks. All right, anyway, Charlie... It's either Eager or Eger, lost his contract with the team because of insensitive comments he made to francophone players, has issued a public apology. Yes, he offended francophone players, that is to say, players who speak French. Ah, the French. No, the French Canadians, actually, uh, Orson. The team announced his contract was not being renewed for the final home game last week and said the running backs coach would not finish out the season with the team. The team has a francophone ambassador, said earlier this week the Eger's or Eager's comments did not align with the philosophy of the team, didn't provide further details about what he said. His agent tweeted the apology on Thursday afternoon, which included a thorough description of two exchanges involving francophone players. I was unaware that my words were offensive, and I apologize for the harm I caused. He wrote, said the comments were made during a filmed practice session where some players were having loud side conversations, he said. He told the players he felt heckled and talked over and said um, the players in question reminded him of the Muppet Show characters of Statler and Waldorf because they never let the show go on uninterrupted. He said it was not the French he took issue with, but being ignored while teaching. I was unaware of the history of the suppression of French-speaking males, and I can now see how my words had a negative effect on them emotionally. He's gone. Just weeks after WeWork's much-anticipated public stock offering, its infamous co-founder and former CEO Adam Newman opened up about the uh, lessons he's learned after he all but ran the company into the ground. Quote, I've had a lot of time to think. There have been multiple lessons and multiple regrets, he said, speaking publicly for the first time in two years at a business conference this week. Under his leadership, we worked, we work, raised billions of dollars, scaled its co-working operations to hundreds of cities around the world, and was valued at $47 billion, a valuation that he acknowledged, quote, went to my head, unquote. But also, under Newman, the company failed spectacularly, according to CNN, 
in its attempt to go public, in large part because its IPO paperwork revealed the unchecked power of the CEO and numerous potential conflicts of interest, as well as the company's staggering losses. That will affect your ability to sell stock. And I, you know, I'm not a business expert. I'm just saying. Staggering losses. You you know, you don't want those being um, headlined when you're trying to sell your stock. Last week, uh, or last month, WeWork did go public on the New York Stock Exchange at a value of about $9 billion as opposed to the uh, more than 45 they were hoping for. But despite being forced out of the company, Newman ultimately walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars. WeWork wasn't just about selling co-working spaces. It aimed to sell a new way of life. His vision included co-living apartments with bustling communal areas so you never feel alone, schools that promised to teach entrepreneurial superpowers to children, and an airline. WeWork halted its plans to go public after Newman was ousted. The company laid off thousands of employees. In the interview this week, Newman expressed regret for the workers who lost their jobs and saw the value of their equity in the company collapse. He also addressed the criticism he received for the way he ran the company, including allegations of drug use and excessive spending. We had a fun culture, but first let's start with the fact we built a global brand. We became a household name. There also comes a moment when you grow out of that to the next stage. I think that could have happened sooner. As more high-profile investors came on board, the valuation increased. It made me feel that whatever style I was leading it was the correct style at the time. I think the moment you lose focus on really the core of your business and why this business was what it meant to be. He also had a 90-minute meeting with Apple CEO Tim Cook. In that meeting with one of the biggest CEOs on the planet, I spoke so much instead of listening. I had the chance to sit in front of a great person like that and learn, and I was busy talking again. I was going to apologize to him and tell him if I ever get a chance to speak to him again, I will listen. I apologize for being an idiot back then, unquote. Mr. Newman, Adam, to you and me. A defense attorney, this is about the Arbery trial that I mentioned earlier. A defense attorney representing one of the men charged with murdering Ahmad Arbery last year apologized on Friday who, to anyone who was, quote, inadvertently, unquote, offended by his comment that he didn't want, quote, black pastors, unquote, to attend the court proceedings. Kevin Goff made the apology after sparking backlash for objecting to the presence of Reverend Al Sharpton at the court the day before by saying, quote, we don't want any more black pastors coming in here. There's only so many pastors they can have. If their pastor is Al Sharpton right now, that's fine, but then that's it. Addressing the court the next day, Guff said he would file a motion putting his concerns in the proper context if his comments were overly broad. I will let the court know that if my statements were overly broad, I will follow up with a more specific motion putting those concerns in the proper context. And my apologies to anyone who might have inadvertently been offended. That's an invertent-ology. Nah, doesn't work. Come on. New York Times will never steal that. 
The British government apologized this week for its botched attempt to protect a ruling party lawmaker by changing rules designed to prevent corruption in Parliament. That's a debacle, according to Reuters, in which Prime Minister Johnson's integrity has been questioned. No, really? Missoula, Montana lawyer Quentin Rhodes issued an apology this week regarding a comment he made suggesting people should shoot school superintendents they do not agree with at a church meeting. In a statement, Rhodes said he became aware that the thoughtless quip may have caused some of the education community to feel unsafe. No. Quote, to those I apologize unreservedly, I do so, whether they're school officials, educators, parents, students, trustees, or members of the public. It was unkind and unchristian, Rhodes said of his statement. He added that he apologizes for any harm caused to his firm or clients by his remark. It was a, a jocular thing. This is why, you know, humor by amateurs. A school board meeting, school trustee Mike Gahey called on Rhodes to stand up from his seat in the audience to recall a conversation they had at a meeting in late August. At that meeting, Rhodes had recommended the group, public schools trustees, change the makeup of the school board in the upcoming election and fire the superintendent. Instead of responding with a repetition of those recommendations, when he was asked by the school's trustee what his recommendations were regarding those officials, Rhodes responded with, shoot him, meaning was, the exchange was captured in a video. He said his comment was made in jest and was received by the audience as such because the room broke into laughter. Humor by amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. The principal at Central Catholic High School, Central Catholic High School in Sacramento, California, promises to involve its students in sensitivity training after denigrating inappropriate photos were posted on one of its social media pages. Before the school took down the post, screenshots of three photos showed five students posing what the principal called Halloween costumes. The photos show one student wearing a police costume T-shirt, four others in serapes. In one photo, a student wearing a serape leans forward on the back of a car with his hands behind his back. The cop poses with his hand on his classmate's back, pretending to arrest him. It appears the photo was taken on campus. Principal Bruce Sawyer said he learned about the incident last week, offered his deepest apologies in an email to the Sacramento Bee. That's a newspaper not killed by nickety noise. And Dateline Richmond Center, Wisconsin, a Richland County woman says she and her husband received the wrong vaccines at a local pharmacy. Center Pharmacy in Richland Center, Wisconsin. Vicki Leffler says she arrived with her husband for their annual flu shots, were given vaccines after filling out paperwork. She's been a customer there for years, has a good relationship with Bruce, her pharmacist. She says this visit left her feeling shocked, however. An hour after getting what they thought were flu shots, she says uh, she and her husband were uh, told when they returned home that the pharmacy accidentally gave them COVID-19 shots. She says their pharmacist immediately called to inform them when the mistake was realized. It was a little concerning just because I've already had the vaccine. So he explained, I'm old enough I could get the booster, but my husband was very adamant he did not want the vaccine, so I'm more upset for that. The pharmacist apologized 
and explained the mistake was made during a busy day when they had been administering COVID vaccines. Ladies and gentlemen, no insult to uh, the pharmacy business, but getting vaccinated at a drugstore, in the humble opinion of this show's host, is like getting brain surgery at a gas station. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyright feature of this broadcast. And now... News of the Godly. The Australian Catholic Dioceses and religious orders have injected almost... 126 million U.S. dollars into the church's insurance company to help pay reparations for abuse carried out by priests, religious, and lay people. Catholic Church Insurance, who knew, has recorded massive losses, 192.3 million last year, nearly 185 million in 2019. Uh, This past June, 18 current Catholic Church insurance shareholders made up of Catholic dioceses and religious orders contributed 125.1 U.S. million in order to solidify the insurance business, but especially the historical abuse claims that CCI covers. And senior members of France's Catholic hierarchy knelt, took an E, in a show of penance at the Shrine of Lourdes, Last week, a day after bishops accepted the church's responsibility for decades of child abuse. Some of the victims of the abuse and lay members supporting them said they were still waiting for details of compensation and a comprehensive reform of the church. Well, you've got to get that, that cash into the insurance company before you're going to get those reparations, babe. That's just, that's just the way that goes. News the godly. It is, despite everything, still a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Program returns next week over these same radio stations and on your, at the same time, and on your audio device of choice whenever you choose. Your device, your choice. And it would be just like if that were the slogan.
the anti-vaxxers. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the playlist of the music heard here on all at harryshearer.com. Me, I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.